Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. I have a feeling our minds are about to be blown after today's episode. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Goldspink all about cervical cancer and HPV, human papillomavirus. How can we reduce our risk factors? What about early detection? Does the Gardasil vaccine really help? Today, we're covering it all. Dr. Goldspink is a naturopathic doctor who has completed the mind-body medicine program at Harvard University Medical School. She has published articles in peer-reviewed journals on women's health conditions and cancer prevention and is a featured wellness expert on the TV show CityLine. Oh, and she happens to be a mama of two and an amazing Pilates student of mine. Doc, thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is going to be good. Yeah. Welcome, welcome. Um, So I guess the first place to start maybe is if you can kind of define like what is human HPV. Human papilloma virus. Yes. H- yeah, we're just going to say we HPV. We call it HPV colloquially for a reason, right? Yes, yeah. uh, that makes sense. And yeah, so it is so common. What people don't realize is that 80% of women and men at some point in their life, if they are a young adult, will contract HPV. It is the most common sexually transmitted infection around. And why it's not that commonly known is that most people who get the virus don't display symptoms. So it can just sit in your system insidiously and and not cause any symptoms. But people who do get symptoms can get either symptoms from high-risk subtypes, which are the types that lead to cancers, and in particular for women, cervical cancer. And then there are low-risk subtypes, which lead to uh, lesions on the skin or genital warts. Good times. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, let's talk. You had me a a genital warts. Eight, zero, zero. Like eight zero. That's that's bananas. I know it is bananas. Yeah, it, it's it's estimated that almost all sexually active young adults will get HPV at some point in their life. And the the way that most young women find out that they've got it is we all go in for our annual or what used to be annual and is now it is now every three years unless there's a problem your Pap smear, mm. and you're told you have abnormal cells. Now this is a very very common phenomenon for a young woman to be told she has abnormal cells in a Pap smear. And so what we now know is that almost all of the time that's caused by the HPV virus. It causes this progression of abnormal cells that can go from a little bit abnormal up a gradient. And, you know, they'll be told you have CIN1, CIN2, CIN3. And then after that, it goes carcinoma in situ and cervical cancer. So that's the progression from just low-grade abnormal cells, which you could think of as inflammation or pro-inflammatory changes at the level of the cervix, all the way up to cervical cancer. And so we really want to prevent that uh, from, from happening. And there's a bunch of ways that we'll discuss that, that a person can prevent that from happening. Yes, please. And so oftentimes, so that progression, if gone undetected, just continues and continues and then can result in cervical cancer. Exactly. So what happens is that in most people, the infection clears naturally. In some people, it progresses. And so you'll see repeated, what what I'll I'll see a lot in practice is women who have repeated bad pap smears. That's when they'll come to me. Because if you have a bad pap smear and it clears 
six months later, it, you know, no action needs to be taken, but a lot of women will have a bad pap smear and then they'll go for a repeat pap smear and it will be another bad pap smear that's either at the same level or it's progressed to a further level on, on, on that gradient uh, that, that I just mentioned. And so often what women are not told is that there's something productive or, or, or preventative that you can do during that time. So what they're told is you've got abnormal cells in your pap smear. The standard of care is to watch and wait. And mm-hmm. typically, no lifestyle advice is given, no diet advice style, uh, no, no diet lifestyle. There are no actual proactive tips that are given to women. So they're just told watch and wait. And what happens is they go home, they're feeling immobilized because they've just been told they have abnormal cells in their cervix that are caused by HPV and that it may progress may progress towards cervical cancer or may not, and that they have to come back in six months for a pap smear. And that's really disempowering. The fact that they're not told, oh, here are some things that you can do while you're watching waiting that may lead to a regression of those abnormal cells. Let's use this as an opportunity to really clean up your lifestyle. Let's use this as an opportunity to clean up your diet. What are you eating? How much alcohol are you drinking? Do you smoke? Are you on the birth control pill? Right? We're not going there. And we really need to be going there because we we know based on solid evidence that there are modifiable risk factors and that there's so much proactive uh, there are so many proactive lifestyle things that that a woman can then embody and decrease her risk of having another abnormal pap smear. And so that's something I'm really passionate about. Oh, I want you want you to go to all of this. This is so important to know. Because you're absolutely right. And I and I looked on your site. So first of all, you've also developed a, su- a supplement. And so maybe we can maybe we can add, and then maybe you can give some some tips on what women listening can do to to improve. Absolutely. So. So Elizabeth, can you tell us more about some of the recommended lifestyle modifications women can take on if they want to sort of improve the prognosis? You know, if they've been told, for example, that, you know, they've, they've had an abnormal pap and instead of watching and waiting, what are some of these lifestyle things that they can do? That's a great question. So there's so much that can be done. So we'll start with the low hanging fruit. So if a woman is taking oral contraceptive pills or the birth control pill, that has an impact on recurrence and, or persistence, I should say, of, of HPV infections. So that could be you know, the low-risk subtypes causing the lesions or the, the high-risk subtypes causing the abnormal pap smear and the cervical changes. So the pill strips nutrients away from a woman's body. A lot of people don't realize that. It strips B vitamins, it strips folic acid. A lot of those vitamins, and in particular folic acid, are essential for a healthy cervix. And so maybe a woman who has persistently bad pap smears over time over time wants to consider alternate means of birth control other than the pill, right? Or maybe she wants to top herself up with the nutrients that the pill is depleting a woman's body of that are known to also cause HPV persistence. So there's two different opportunities there for either supplementing or considering alternative methods of birth control. Um, another, another piece of low-hanging fruit, cigarette smoking. So that increases your risk of persistent HPV by a tremendous amount. So definitely quitting smoking will have a huge impact on uh, HPV symptoms. Uh, consumption of too much alcohol, consumption of too many refined and processed foods, refined sugar depresses your immune system. You're not able to sufficiently mount a response to any virus, HPV included. So all of these things are, are easy 
easy fixes for people who want to make some positive lifestyle adjustments. And guess what? When you make these different changes in your life, it impacts everything, right? So now you're preventing colds, you're preventing flus, you're, you're you know, reducing severity of COVID if you're to get COVID because now your immune system is able to function optimally. So it has the added benefit of being just all around good for everything. That's awesome. And, and we, why are we not telling women this, right? And why are we telling them to watch and wait? Yeah, and that's the thing. So here on on, on the show today, I, I think we're talking about empowering women with information, resources, and 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 evidence based data on action that they can take. Right. The alternative is not, or you can do this other thing. The alternative is, or you can do nothing. Watch mm-hmm. and wait. Right. And I I see that as very disempowering. And so that's why I'm really passionate about this because there is so much that can be done. And if you look at the data, there's really good data to back a lot of this stuff. There's there's good data to back these lifestyle interventions that we've discussed. There's good data to back um, some key supplements. So there there's uh, reproducible studies that show that women's blood levels are low in certain key nutrients when they have HPV persistence. So you know, these are cheap, cheer and cheap and cheerful vitamins and supplements. Why not take them while you're watching and waiting, right? We're not talking about spending a fortune. Um, and they've been found to have really beneficial outcomes in, in women and men with, with HPV. What are some of those? I've got, I'm sorry, I'm like just bombarding you with questions here, but what are some of those nutrients? Like, can you name them? Just a few of them, say, for example, I know there's many, but you know, what would be like maybe the top three actual nutrients that become depleted um, or that are usually depleted when someone has been diagnosed with an abnormal path or HPV. Yes. So the per, the the persistence of low nutrients in blood. So what we're seeing there is folic acid is a huge heavy hitter. So so you definitely want to be su- supplementing with with uh, folate. Selenium is another key nutrient. Vitamin C, and uh, a. a a phytonutrient group called carotenoids. So lycopene is one of the heavy hitters in the carotenoid group, but that's another one. So carotenoids in particular, lycopene, the folic acid or folate, the vitamin C and the selenium. Those are the ones that we see persistently low in the blood of of people with uh, HPV infections. And you'd have your clients that would come to you kind of do a combination of actual, you know, supplements combined with just through eating and and fruits and vegetables and and their kind of lifestyle changes. Exactly. So those those are the 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 actual vitamins, the nutrients. In addition to that, I would have people on herbs, right? Because there are we've got medicinal mushrooms, we've got components out of broccoli sprout extract. Um, I don't want to get too geeky here, but we've got glucosinolates, I3C, DIM, all out of broccoli sprout extract. We've got reishi mushrooms. Um, we've got astragalus. All of this has has human data showing HPV clearance, right? So we also know the mechanism of these is that they're antiviral, they're potent antioxidants, they're 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 great therapeutic agents for all viruses, but in particular, they actually have human clinical data showing HPV clearance. So I'm a huge fan of in addition to the the key vitamins and, and nutrients that are that tend to be low in blood, also giving these. Uh, these plant-based substances that have good human clinical data. Which is why you made what you did, right? So can you tell the story of your your friend and and what inspired you to create Papalex? People are like, what's Papalex? (laughs) So you're you're basically, I'm like a total fangirl here. You are so passionate about this. You actually created a supplement to help women 
clear after a story. Tell us a story. I'm not going to tell a story. Yes. Okay. So here's, here's how this, this came about my 13 years ago, my best friend at the time, I was on this progression of CIN one. She went back for a pap CIN two. She went back for a pap CIN three. She's on this progression towards cervical cancer. And she says to me, what can be done in addition to the conventional care that I'm receiving? What else can I do? Uh, so what I did was I booked consults with experts in, in the field. I went onto the PubMed and, uh, and Cochrane medical databases and pulled all of the literature. Um, I, I, I did a real serious deep dive on this, pulled all the material, and I gave her 10 things. So I gave her all the, the nutrients and herbs that I just mentioned to you, because that was where all the strong data was. I gave her those 10 things. I think I must have spent about $300. I told her, you know, take two of each of these bottles every day. Uh, and she did. And we, we cleared the infection. She had her first normal pap within a few months and couldn't believe it. And she said to me, why you have to make this available to other women. I've seen so many women on my journey suffering from the same thing. And there's nothing out there that contains all these things. Sure. They can go through the path you went through and have their friend pay hundreds of dollars in consults and hundreds of dollars in bottles and figure this out on their own. But why wouldn't you just put all this stuff into one pill and make it available to them for $30 instead of $300? Mm. And so I thought, okay, that's that's a really good idea. It seems like there's a use case for it. It seems like it would be a great benefit to these women. Let me try doing that. So I went through the process of you know, getting the Health Canada regulatory approvals and finding suppliers for all these raw materials and producing something. And that was 13 years ago. And the rest is history. So this, this niche sort of found me. I, I never intended to set out and create um, create this offering, but it's something that uh, that came my way, and it's been my pleasure over the last 13 years to continually improve that that product and uh, you know transparency in terms of how we're sourcing and where we're getting these ingredients from, and reading all the specs on okay, where did this broccoli sprout extract come from? What are the different compounds that are active in it? Can we scientifically validate that? Can we measure? Um, obviously, I'm I've got a bit of um, you know an anal retention to detail, we'll call it, but <laughs> <laughs> I like being able to control for like the therapeutic value of every single thing going into that so that I know it's not just, you know, a, a, a product where we're sourcing things from China that are not clean and that could be contaminated or, and, and I feel like that makes all the difference in terms of the, how therapeutic it is. That's amazing. And I think it, in linking to what you said around empowering women, especially during this time, I can only imagine and being, I mean, you're, an amazing friend, clearly creating this Thank you. Um, when your friend has gone through this, but I could only imagine between pap appointments and, and each one coming back and going up the scale each time, if only being told to watch and wait versus feeling like you're in control of something like the things that you're offering women to do that can help to lower you down, back down the scale to get towards that clear pap again, I could only imagine how challenging that would be if if women didn't feel empowered to know that they have other options out there like your Exactly. To. And I think it's worth mentioning. I mean, there are great conventional treatments once you progress up that path. If you're, yeah. you know, you're going from CIN1 to CIN2, CIN3, at some point you absolutely are going to need a conventional invasive therapy. I mean, there's 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 leap, there's different forms of um, you know, lasers and cauterization and and cone biopsies where they're removing aspects of the surgery. And if that's necessary, I'm all for that. But what I'm saying is that when you're told to watch and wait and it's early stage, don't watch and wait, do something, you know, get, get empowered, at least implement these lifestyle elements, the low hanging fruit, you know, the, the, the supplementation that's been found to be uh, improve these markers. Um, 
I think that that's that we've got medical care for acute conditions and for serious things um, that that is absolutely wonderful. But for these more slow, insidious things, oftentimes it's it's the key nutrients and the and the herbal supplementation that's of great benefit. So, Elizabeth, I have a bit of a personal uh, kind of story and, and it links in here because my mom was diagnosed with cervical cancer and she ended up with um, having a full hysterectomy, it got to that point. And thankfully, everything went really well. And it was a really aggressive form of cancer, they told us after the fact, and, um, and we're just so grateful. And that was actually 10 years ago. And it's so interesting, because my dad just was over last weekend. And he brought a letter that I had written on the Mother's Day following um, her having her cervical cancer removed and being healthy again. And I had been by her side, like coming out of her hysterectomy and, um, and it was just a really, uh, taking me back to that place where she had gone through that. And it was, um, especially challenging for us because she, the result of this, which links back to what you're speaking of was actually two paps that had not been raised as, um, uh, the elevated kind of progression that then reaches cervical cancer. They had missed actually mm. flagging them to her. Um, so it was something that pr- potentially could have been prevented, like you said, um, but then got to that point. And, and thankfully, she is all good and, and full clean bill of health. But I think that that's I know she sent an email out, out to me that she asked for me to forward to all of my friends on the importance of regular PAPs and, um, and just, you know, taking care of yourself from that perspective and also making sure that um, in Canada, it's they call you if there's bad news, but making sure that you call to just get your records like and and make sure that you're being an advocate for yourself from that uh, perspective on just getting your results back, even if they don't call you. So um, and I think that and I don't know if that's still the case, but that was the case with her is she just thought she would get a call if there was something wrong and she never received a call. So she always assumed her paps were clear. Um, so I guess that kind of brings me to a question around I know that in Ontario, at least, we only are now getting recommended to get PAPs every once every, is it two or three years? Once every three years, starting at age 21, unless there is an abnormal PAP, and then it becomes more frequent. And as you probably recall, it used to be every year. So this is a big adjustment up to every three years if you have a history of normal PAPs. So is that in your eyes, should we be trying to get more regular PAPs? Can things progress that quickly? Is that enough time? Like for me, I worry just because I've seen my, what my mom has gone through through that. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if there's any reason to worry, if there's ever been a history of an abnormal PAP or, you know, if there's, if there's any concern whatsoever, you can ask for a more frequent PAP smear. But what they found and what the data has shown is that most times it is quite slow growing. So if you have a history of normal PAPs and you're starting at age 21, then the three-year PAP smear schedule is is fine. I think we will know when we have more long-term data. We've only started this recently. And, but, but right now it's looking like that is an acceptable schedule. And of course, those who have had an abnormal PAP must do them more frequently, typically every six months or every, every year, depending upon how abnormal the PAP was. And I think you're mentioning something so important because the best prevention that we have is screening. So 
for everybody listening, you get your pap smears regularly. They are so, so, so important. Cervical cancer, if caught early, is incredibly treatable. But if, uh, like what happened with your mom, if, if screening is missed or it's an abnormal result and that's not relayed to you, or if you haven't gone in for your, your pap smear for, for any reason, um, that is the, the, biggest, uh, the, the biggest contributor to a cervical cancer diagnosis. So screening is absolutely essential. I have a question because a friend of mine, and this is a story that, you know, I was going to share on this podcast. So there is this vaccine called Gardasil and it seems to be commonplace and very often recommended to pretty young girls. I think is it as early as 11 or 12, correct me if I'm wrong. That's correct. And I remember when it first came out, I think I was in my late twenties and I was just, they were like, yeah, you can still get it. Anyways, I ended up not getting it. Um, but a friend of mine did get it and ended up having some neurological challenges as a result. Um, and it seems like there are some class action lawsuits about this, this vaccine. So, you know, I'm completely impartial. I would just love to know your thoughts on it because obviously if we talk about HPV, we need to talk about the vaccine that's been created to apparently prevent the sort of more dangerous strains. So what can you tell us about the Gardasil vaccine? So the Gardasil vaccine protects against the most common high-risk strains of HPV, including 16, 18, and 45. And those are the ones that have been found to most commonly lead to cervical cancer. It also protects against the most common low-risk strains as well. And Gardasil has been around now for a number of years. And it has been found in, in, when I look at the data and I look at the countries that it's, it's, uh, that they have, widespread prevalence of the vaccine, it has been found to decrease the rates of cervical cancer in the countries that are using it. I have seen the data on the neurological issues and the adverse effects, and and it is definitely an issue in a very small amount of of people who receive the vaccine. In Japan, they actually pulled the vaccine because of adverse effects that were happening in young women. And I'm aware of the class action uh, lawsuits happening because I actually know an OB-GYN who was part of the case uh, of a class action lawsuit happening in, in the state of New York. So I am aware of that. I have seen that. But when I crunch the data and I see the countries that are utilizing the vaccine and I see that it's actually helping to prevent uh, cervical cancer when used in conjunction with screening, I still think that if we're looking at the greatest good, that the Gardasil vaccine is contributing to the greatest good if, if our uh, if our intention is to eradicate cervical cancer. I think screening and the Gardasil vaccine are a good idea, um, despite the fact that unfortunately, yes, there are reports of these adverse mm-hmm. effects and some of them are neurological. Even when we look at Japan, they're, they're, they've pulled the vaccine. They've also simultaneously cut back on screening. So mm-hmm. it's very difficult to ascertain like why we're seeing some, some raising rates over there since they've done both at the same time, but they are definitely seeing um, some, some rising rates of, uh, of, of cervical cancer as a result of, you know, the, the changes that they've made to the vaccination and screening schedule. Uh, and, and it's not hereditary. So that was another question, right? So, you know, in, in Lexi's case, for example, if, you know, you know, your mother had had this, would you then be, you know, more likely to want to potentially get this vaccine because you're worried about the hereditary nature? Or is it something that, you know, it's not really based on family history? 
Yeah, when you look at something like ovarian cancer and, and breast cancer and the BRCA genes that are involved in those, those are highly hereditary. With cervical cancer, it's almost always caused by cervical changes resulting from the H HPV virus. And so if you don't have one of those high-risk strains, it's very unlikely that you will end up getting cervical cancer. Okay. And how do you test if you have those, those strains? Like, is there a way, like in my yes. perfect world, we just get like a blood test. Oh, you've got the strain. <laughs> oh, you don't like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So what you can do when you're doing your, your pap smear is you can actually be tested for HPV and it's, so it's genotyping and that can tell you also what strain of HPV you have. Only women can do this. There, there is not HPV genotyping uh, or HPV testing available for men in North America, but for women, it, it is available. Is that part of the standard of care with a regular pap or do you need to ask for that? So you would do that if, if, so if you were found to have an abnormal pap, most docs would do that. Um, so if there's no reason to think that you, that you have HPV or you haven't had an abnormal pap, then it typically would, there would be no reason to run that. Mm -hmm. I've also seen some at-home test kits. There's a company called Eve Kit uh, that is Toronto-based. And so women can actually do this testing from the comfort of their own home if they mm -hmm. wish. Oh, wow. That's cool. So just to find out, A, do they have HPV and yes. B, what strains? Exactly. Oh, that's good. Can you say it again? What's it called? Eve Kit. E-V-E Kit. It's a awesome. Toronto-based company. And I believe they have Health Canada approval for um, at-home HPV testing. I'm certain they have, H they have Health Canada approval. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Good to know. Very empowering. <laughs> that's what it's all about, right? Get the information. Exactly. Because then in theory, if you were if you were told or you got the testing and you said, oh, you've got sort of a higher risk strain of HPV, then would it make more sense potentially for you to go ahead and get the Gardasil vaccine versus if you don't have those strains? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great question because the Gardasil vaccine is typically recommended. I believe the upper age limit where it's recommended across the board is 26. So if you're older than 26, it's a case-by-case -case scenario where your doctor will look at your risk. You know, if you're, are, you in, are you married in a monogamous relationship? Are you not? Um, do you already have HPV uh, strains? So it's a case-by-case -case scenario there. And some, for some people, it still makes sense to, to get that vaccination after that age. Got it. Got it. There's so much to know about these vaccines. And I know it's like people don't, I feel like we don't talk openly enough about it, you know? And I, yeah, you know what? Yeah. Just as a general, uh, as a general thought on vaccines, I feel like as soon as you open up a discussion about yeah. it, people get their back up on either side. And I feel like opening those lines of communication and whether you're, you know, whether you're all for it or you're against it, actually being able to have a discussion about it is where the magic happens. And then we can talk about, well, I've seen this data. Well, I've seen that data and actually be able to discuss and hash these things out, right? Like I'm sharing today, I've done a synthesis of the data on the Gardasil vaccine. And I really do recommend it because it, you know, the, from a synthesis of the evidence, I can show that it's, I can see that it's actually helping to prevent uh, cervical cancer. And, and my goal and my intention is to help eradicate cervical cancer. So, but I think it's important to be able to have those discussions on, on both sides and for us not to be silencing either side. So true. So, so true. So true. And I think that this, I mean, in your voice around cervical cancer, empowering women to, you know, not just watch and wait and actually take this into their own hands and, and be proactive around it, be getting your annual or sorry, every three year PAP appointments and, um, and just, you know, staying on top of this, as well as advice around the vaccine, like it's all, it comes with clearly, you're very, you know, 
educated and you've done your homework, it stemmed from, you know, a passion relating to your best friend. And that's how you've just gotten yourself like completely immersed in all of this. And I think that that is just speaks volumes for what your, you know, um, intent is behind the education for women. And this topic is not spoken about enough. And when my mom like sent the email out to all of my friends and her friends, it was her saying like, this is something that happens to so many women and just make sure you're on top of what you can do so that you can avoid these types of things and avoid cancer in your lifetime. So cervical cancer. What you're bringing up brings me to another point that I see a lot of that makes me very sad, which is the stigma that's attached to this. And so often women find out, you know, they've got a bad pap smear or they've got HPV and they don't want to talk about it because there's stigma attached to it. And for me, that's crazy. If 80% of people have this, why is there stigma? Why, why are we not having these open conversations where we can share, hey, I've got this. This is my experience, right? You'll, you'll only ever discuss this with maybe your doctor and your closest friend. But by opening up and actually having this discussion and, and, and speaking freely, we're really taking the stigma away from those who, who are experiencing symptoms from it. And the eighty percent is like yeah. mind blowing. Like I would never. We read that before you came on as well, and we were both like whoa, how 80% of women. I mean, and so let's talk, just, I'm curious. So men get it too, but do they have any negative risks associated? Absolutely. And what we're seeing now is actually a rise in uh, cancers of the oropharynx or or the mouth and throat in in men. So I don't know if you recall, but Michael Douglas, Catherine Zeta-Jones's husband was hospitalized and required surgery for oropharyngeal cancer from HPV, but it is becoming more common. And as we as we look and we see the cervical cancer rates decreasing, we see oropharyngeal cancer rates increasing. So that that, that is a huge problem for men. Men can also get penile uh, and, and anal cancers as well from HPV, but it's really the oropharyngeal cancers that we're seeing arise in. Wow. So I would presume that they would also benefit from similar lifestyle modification factors. Absolutely. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Everybody who, who smokes should quit smoking. <laughs> the you know considerations we discussed around the pill are, are extremely helpful. Cleaning up your diet, meaning getting rid of all those refined sugars and, and processed foods, consuming greater quantities of fruits and vegetables. I like to recommend five to 10 every single day and placing a heavy emphasis on cruciferous vegetables. So anything belonging to the broccoli, broccoli family, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kale, those are extremely therapeutic in terms of providing anti-cancer compounds to the body. Uh, green tea in particular, sencha also has catagens that are, that are potent anti-cancer compounds as well. And uh, you know, decreasing alcohol uh, and caffeine content also helpful. So th- those are all the sort of diet and, and lifestyle tips that that I heavily recommend if HPV is a concern. And it is pretty much for everybody, from what I'm hearing. Yeah. <laughs> Eight out of ten people. Wow! Wow! Okay, well, can we talk you. about the coffee? Yeah. What about the coffee? Okay, caffeine. I- so- <laughs> Okay. So we're all, we're all moms of two kids and we both have like little, like your youngest Elizabeth doc is, is how old now? How many months? She's six months and I've got a two and a half year old. Okay. So what's the deal? Like, can we talk a little bit about the caffeine scenario? Like how much is too much? Yes. And, and so now we're talking generally to all, all people enjoy your coffee. If it makes you feel (laughs) great and not jittery and and terrible and, and, you know, you're not, counting on it for life support, enjoy your coffee, but just enjoy it in moderation. Wake up and have a nice big mug 
and then move on to something else. If you mm-hmm. want some caffeine, you know, try some green and white teas. Those have catagens, theanine, other compounds that are highly beneficial in them in addition to ca- caffeine. And a, a tea has about half the caffeine of coffee. So just reduce, you know, enjoy your coffee, savor it in the morning and then stop so that you're not carrying it throughout your day, having it in the late afternoon, and then it's impacting your, your sleep yeah. and you're, you're requiring it to, to function. You know, I'm not a fan of requiring anything to function no. other than air. So if you find you're requiring it to function, reduce, replace. Well, everyone listening really appreciates you because no one wants to be told to. (laughs) I never, I never even drank coffee until I had kids. Like I never, ever even touched it and then had kids. No way. That's impressive that you went that long in life. I know. And I was actually quite proud. I was like, I was quite proud of myself. And then, you know what? I was and now I enjoy it. I really do enjoy like a cup in the morning. I'm like, this is nice. I add some like healthy things to it. So it makes me feel better. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> Mix mm-hmm. some good shaga and coconut oil. and like. Oh, good for you. Oil. That's impressive. You got the medicinal mushrooms going in your coffee. Yeah. yeah. I do collagen. lion's mane in mine in the morning to really, and I find I can actually like feel my cognition being enhanced when I take it in my coffee in the morning. Well, I'm going to add a lines main. Adam makes fun of me. He's like, look at all the things lined up that makes, make you a coffee. He's like, I'd love to bring you a coffee in the morning, but I would never be able to accomplish this (laughs) brew that's going on here. That's impressive. I love it. Are there any other final tips that you want to give us Dr. Goldspink about HPV and cervical cancer? Do you want to leave anyone with tips that you haven't touched on yet? I think, and this is applicable to everybody, not just people who are trying to prevent HPV, but there's there's four pillars of optimal health. And so just ensure that those four pillars are in check. So ensure that your diet is healthy. We've talked about some ways to augment your diet to ensure that it's healthy. Get all that refined food out of there. Ensure that you're eating healthy grains like brown rice and steel cut oats, that you have an abundance of fruit and vegetables in your life, five to 10 a day. Lean proteins if you're vegetarian legumes. If you're not, wild caught fish, a little bit of you know free range meat, organic chicken, very clean animal products in small amounts, but mostly plants, eat mostly plants and exercise, move daily, whether that's a 30 minute brisk walk every day. If, if that's all you can do, that's enough. That's great. Or whether that's the incorporation of strength training, yoga, I like to do Pilates with Nikki a couple <laughs> of times a week. So whatever you can do to move every single day, minimum 30 minutes and sleep seven to eight hours uninterrupted, cold room, Ensure that you're sleeping well because sleep is when your hormones are optimized. When you sleep, your brain actually sort of shrinks and your interstitial fluid can go through your, through your, uh, uh, sorry, not your interstitial, but your, um, the, uh, the fluid that runs through your brain and spinal cord actually uh, can, can clean uh, the debris out of your brain. And that's what happens when you sleep. And we now know that, which is pretty cool. And uh, so ensure that you're sleeping seven to eight hours uninterrupted. If you're a new mom, there's going to be some exceptions to that. I was woken up (laughs) nine times last night. That's part of life. It's a phase. It's temporary, right? But getting back to that place when you can um, is is helpful. And then the last one is just reducing psychological stressors uh, as much as you can. We all have psychological stressors that enter our life every day. But how can we cope better with that? How can we reduce things that are toxic in our life or eliminate them so that we have this, you know, great psychological um, balance. We'll, we'll call it balance, even though that doesn't really exist. Love it. Got to keep it real there with the seven to up nine times last night. <laughs> and you're still glowing. So Thanks. I'm taking all these tips. <laughs> you look fabulous. It's true. So I'll take all the tips. Uh, thank you so much for coming and, and speaking about this really important, um, important 
subject and just empowering women around it. We love that. And uh, your, yeah, your, and your tips are, are so helpful to women. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you so much. And forgive my, my mommy brain on the brain fluid. It's the cerebral spinal fluid. As a scientist, I've got to clarify that. You were up nine times last night. It's okay. I think we <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. And everyone can check out um, the uh, show notes for where they can find you, your website, um, and your supplement called Papalax, right? Yes. As well. So check that out as well in the show notes. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.